Makes makes everything worse. Everything worse, but in a certain sense, everything better. Did we get to that part? Nope. Uh, no, we need to do well, We did that. Yeah, your yes. Right. Yes, we did that. You're like so when you know that you can re- free the godly soul from the imprisonment within yourself through investing yourself fully into Torah mitzvahs, and especially through um, the mitzvah of prayer. Um, that knowledge that you can and are doing that brings you joy. Right? Um, the, the difficulty is that you as a human being remain um, an embodiment of evil. So there's some conflicting emotions here. And the idea is that one should prioritize their relationship with the godly soul over their relationship with the animal soul and the body. Right? So that one should not allow the negative emotions felt towards the body to interfere with the joy that comes from recognizing the good that you are doing for the soul. And this is, this is where we left off yesterday. This is what transitions us into chapter 32, which um, is a bit of a departure. Now, uh, I mentioned this yesterday. I'll just I'm gonna say it again. When the author originally wrote to Tanya, his first edition, which was not published, um, it was only published recently in the past few decades. Um, it was missing the end of chapter 12, chapter 30, and chapter 32. What these all have in common is they all speak about um, the relationship with other people. The end of chapter 12 talks about how a Bainanese um, relationship with the negative traits towards other people, such as jealousy and... and um, and vengeance, how the Bainian deals with that. Chapter 30, which we spoke about yesterday, is seeing yourself as lower than other people. And chapter 32 is loving your fellow Jew. So the author starts off chapter 32 by saying that if you are successful in viewing your human self in such despicable terms, and that your only joy in life comes through identifying with the godly soul, then you are on a direct and easy path to fulfilling the mitzvah of loving your fellow Jew to each and every individual Jew, great and small. So I first want to just stop and talk about this. The Alter Rebbe in Tanya takes a very radical position regarding the mitzvah of loving your fellow Jew, which is that you actually have to love every single individual Jew and that you have to like, feel love towards them. And the feeling of love towards them has to be to the same degree to which you love yourself and the same kind of love that you love yourself. Everyone? Everyone. Okay. There's an old uh, Jewish expression, what's the difference between a Jew and an anti-Semite? What? I'll say it and then I'll explain it because I'm not sure everyone will get it. Is that uh, anti-Semite hates Klal Yisrael but loves Rebbe Yisrael. And a Jew loves Klal Yisrael and hates Rebbe Yisrael. Klai Yisrael means the collective Jewish people, and Rebbe Yisrael means like a guy named Yisrael. Because every anti-Semite hates the Jews, but there's like one Jew that he actually knows, and he likes that guy. And then Jews, we love the Jewish people, except that guy, that guy, that guy, and all these the individuals. But the mitzvah is not to love the Jewish people. The mitzvah is to love each and every individual Jew. And the Altarim understands this, and, and by the way, this is a departure from the classical understanding. One of the ways in which Hasidus really does depart from classical understandings in Judaism is the mitzvah of Yisrael is understood to actual feelings of love, that, are, that can be understood as being like the feelings of love you have towards yourself. Most, um, you know, halachically, that's not how this mitzvah is understood. Most classic commentators in the Chumash 
just take it as a given. You're not actually required to love another person the way you love yourself. And some don't even understand it as a feeling. It's to actually feel love, but just the way we treat people. But Hasidus is quite, uh, I would say, extreme in this, that no, you actually have to love each and every Jew, regardless of how great and small they are. So, now the issue here is that when we love, and this is kind of, chapter 32, I decided I'm going to spend a little bit more time on chapter 32. It's something that gets, um, it doesn't get its fair, um, doesn't, it doesn't get treated fairly. It often gets served as platitudes. You should love every Jew, deep down we're all one, that kind of stuff. Which is not saying false, but it's more sophisticated. So the first thing is, the Altarebbe has a problem with the notion that you should love your fellow as yourself. Because the way in which we love other people is qualitatively different than the way we love ourselves. What is that difference? That my love for other people is something that is gained or lost based on my judgment of them, my valuing of them. Whereas self-love doesn't work like that. Um, I have a very cheeky way of explaining this, though it's not so nice. Um, that even people who are really, really depressed love themselves in ways that they don't love other people. People who are so depressed that they think life is not worth living, as a general rule, they only kill themselves. They don't go around killing everybody else because it's only their suffering that bothers them. <laughs> no, but this is a, this is a point that Chassidah says, is that we are so deeply attached to ourselves as an innate thing. Right? And when we, we value other people, it's because of something about them that we find meaningful. So even if I love somebody to the point that I'm willing to die for them, the way in which I love them is not the way in which I love myself. So how can I love every individual Jew the way in which I love myself? Southard says, well, okay, if, if we can take the human being, the body, the animal soul, the kind of lived experience, and we can say that that's like not really what's important. That's not, that's not the place that I'm coming from. That's the place I'm identified with, right? Which is the end of chapter 31. I identify with the godly soul, even though I don't really experience it. Well, first off, there's no way to really judge whose godly soul is greater. Okay, now I have to explain what this means a little bit. What's the most important organ you have? Brain. What? Brain. You sure? No. <laughs> but I guess. Why would you say the brain? There's a reason you said the brain. Why would you say the brain? When brain is not working, person is not alive. So. Okay. That's also true about the, you know, the, the liver and the heart, the lungs. You cannot replace brain. You can't replace livers either. You get someone else's liver, you're saying, right? Okay, so that doesn't make it more important, though, right? That just makes it harder to replace. I mean, what if we could figure out how to, like, grow you a replacement brain? Then it would cease to be as important? Because it's, like, the source of the functioning of other parts. Mm. Right, and, and, the, and the blood that allows the brain to function isn't, you know, if we follow that line of reasoning, then we go back to the, the, the blood. The blood sends us back to the heart. The heart then sends us back to the liver, right? What's the most important organ? Heart. Why? 
All does is move the blood around. The skin? <laughs> it is the largest organ. Size means more important. I mean, you know, if, if your skin gets damaged, I mean, it's it's pretty painful and bad. But you know, it can, it can you can still survive in ways that you know, if you're without kidneys, it doesn't look too well. Why is this a hard question to answer? Right, it's based on a, on a false premise that you can actually determine which organ is going to be objectively more important. Now, it is true that if I talk about a specific issue, right, I can understand that, for instance, okay, when it comes to, for instance, preventing you from getting disease, right, we can talk about how the skin plays an important role, we can talk, right, and we can start trying to understand that, right, and we can maybe make hierarchies there. So the idea is that when we talk about the souls, in some sense, the soul, all the godly souls are like one organism. And they all play a unique role. And each one is contributing something that other ones don't have. And so that really the wholeness of the godly souls is found in all the godly souls. And you cannot look at someone else and figure out exactly in what way they are, their soul is superior to everyone else's soul and what way without their soul, the whole system would collapse. Rebbe's soul isn't more important than my soul. Correct. The difference between you and the Rebbe is that the Rebbe feels that way innately. <laughs> yep. Yep. In other words, like this. I can talk about how the heart is very, very important because the heart is what pumps the blood that keeps everything around, right? But I've adopted a certain perspective. But really, as you go deeper and deeper into understanding how there's multiple different perspectives on things, right? You can put something else as more important, put something else more important. And so in some sense, there is no genuine way to objectively assert this is the most important. Each soul has something superior to every other soul, which is why every other soul really needs each other, every other soul. And so if you recognize that, if you love yourself because of your soul, is your soul complete without the soul of another Jew? Now, what if that person is a sinner? Say, well, not them, because they're a sinner, right? Clearly, they're not doing what they're supposed to be doing. I shouldn't love them. But here's the thing. How do you know the role that their soul is supposed to play? Do you know the role that their soul is supposed to play? And do you know how significant that role is and what way it contributes to the health of the collective Jewish people and their souls? No. Okay. Um, I'm just going to give you a, 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 a biological example. Uh, you've heard this idea that people sometimes get their tonsils removed? Okay. It used to be doctors were very cavalier about removing tonsils. The slightest thing, they would remove the tonsils. Why? They didn't think that they were significant. Are they significant? We don't know. They seem to be more significant. People with their tonsils removed seem to have heart more issues with their immune system. Now... Does it outweigh not having your tonsils removed? Doesn't outweigh. So, for instance, one of my nephews had half the tonsil removed. There's a way to do that. I don't know, but part of the consideration is like, whatever the reason for removing the tonsils was necessary enough. The doctor's like, you know, but like, why, you know, leave part of the tonsil because it still has some benefits. It's not always obvious what serving what, right? So you see another Jew, this Jew isn't a religious, this Jew is sinning, right? You don't know exactly what role their soul is supposed to play, right? Maybe their one moment of tshuva between them and God that only they know about actually has a profound effect on the collective Jewish spiritual being that your soul desperately depends on for its own mission. You don't know that, right? So the, 
So the, the wholeness, the completeness of any individual soul is only found with the other souls. And you can't judge a person because of their spiritual status and spiritual level, what's really going on, how much you really need them. So because of that, if you love yourself due to your soul, necessarily you love every other Jewish soul. I can't love myself and then despise part of what makes me thrive. That doesn't work. It doesn't make sense. But that means I have to really stop seeing myself and the other person in terms of who they are as a human being and just in terms of the soul. Then you can go even deeper, which is that on the core level, all of our souls really are a unified, single being. We share a single essence. And the idea here is like kind of the way siblings have a bond, which is not that siblings complete each other, but they have a kind of a shared identity, a shared source. Now, as human beings, our, our, our parents do not define the totality of us. But when we talk about the godly soul, what defines the godly soul ultimately is how it's rooted in God. And if that's what defines me as me, in terms of my godly soul and you and you in terms of your godly soul, is there really any place to differentiate between us? So if you take these two ideas, and there's, there's, there's a conversation time to discuss why the altar brings both ideas. Why do you need the idea that all the souls complement each other and that all the souls have an a shared essence, why both ideas are necessary. But if you take these two things, then it means that as much as I value myself in terms of my soul and my joy is through the, comes from the redemption of the soul, that means I see that my, the, the part of me that I value is something that I share with every other Jew and it's something that is only found in completion with every other Jew. So what I love about me is embodied in every Jew. And what makes every Jew a Jew is necessary for me to be me. And if that's the case, I can't love myself and value myself without that being extended to each and every Jew. Regardless of their spiritual status, regardless of their level of observance, regardless of the level of their soul even. Because the level of soul just talks about what it funct- how it functions, not really how important it is. What about like when they wrong you? Like if your liver is like flaring up? Like- We're going to talk about okay. that. The altar ever then immediately asks the question, but don't we have a statement of the sages which says... That you are supposed, when you see someone sinning, you're supposed to hate them. Did you know that there's a mitzvah to hate? There's a mitzvah to hate sinners. Specifically Jewish sinners. Now, why? Why would there be a mitzvah to hate? Let's just stop before we go. Why would there be a mitzvah to hate? And by the way, actually I'm going to wait. I'm not going to say this now. I'll wait till it. Why would there be a mitzvah to hate sinners? So people will not be... So the Rebbe rejects that as a reason. That's a classic reason that's brought, but the Rebbe rejects it. And the reason why the Rebbe rejects it is because then what you are doing is you are, um, you are turning one Jew into a means for the collective good. And that violates the infinite value of the individual. So that can't be the reason. Now, again, there are Jewish thinkers who do use that here. Does it follow the same rule over here? Where if it's one essence, then Adam's studying is like, it's disconnected with these emotions. No, that doesn't necessarily get you hatred. That can get you negative emotions. And there's a kind of range of negative emotions. We want hatred specifically. What kind of people do you hate? Bad people. Because I hate people who are mean people. What? 
Yeah, yeah. You're, you hate your enemies or the enemies of the people that you care about, right? Mean people. So if you identify with your godly soul, you don't hate mean people, actually. It's not true. You find mean people entertaining as long as... No, I'm serious. This is the honest <laughs> truth. The, the Rebbe Shab speaks about this, about the innate cruelty in every human being. Um, that we find, we, find mean, we find mean and cruelty funny up to a certain point. Um, think about it, right? Think about a lot of jokes and things like that, right? As long as it doesn't hit too close, right? It's not too far out of bounds, right? It's not, you know, it's me or someone I care about too deeply. Okay. Um, no, but if someone, if, someone is, if someone is the antagonist, the enemy of someone, myself or someone I care about, then we have feelings of hate. That's generally where we have feelings of hate towards. Yeah? Um, sinners are called the enemies of God. So how would someone who identifies with a godly soul feel about a sinner? They would hate them. As the verse says, Hashem, those who love God, they hate evil. And so, because a sinner is an evil person, how does someone who loves God feel? They hate sinners. And it's a mitzvah. Okay? So this seems to be a bit of a problem because you're supposed to love every Jew, but you're also supposed to hate sinners. At the same time. Well, so for, the altar gives two approaches to this issue. Approach number one is that not to first limit the scope of the requirement to hate sinners, which is that in order to hate a sinner, you need certain conditions that have to be met. One, they have to be... Um, on your level. Remember, the altar was writing to someone who takes their relationship with God seriously. They have to be on your level of Torah and mitzvahs. I'll come back to what that means. Um, and they have to be someone that you are, um, have already fulfilled the, uh, um, someone who's you're close to, you've already fulfilled the mitzvah of rebuking them. But if those conditions are not met, then you should not hate them. So let's understand, let's understand these conditions, okay? And then what, what should you do when those conditions aren't met? So first off, you cannot call someone a sinner if their behavior stems from a lack of awareness or sensitivity or familiarity with God's will. So very simply, someone who doesn't grow up religious Right? The fact they don't keep Shabbos doesn't make them a sinner. The act is a sinful act. They cannot be described as a sinner. What if someone grows up religious and they violate Shabbos? Does that make them a sinner? No, because actually there are a lot of rules of Shabbos. Those who grow up religious don't know all of them, right? What if the person, though, is someone who, like the, the person out there was addressing in time, someone takes their Judaism seriously, they learn, they practice mitzvahs, and then despite their level of knowledge and familiarity and understanding the significance of the mitzvahs, they then deviate from what God demands. So what we're saying now is that their sin is an actual rejection of God's will. If, you're, you know, if a person is just not that of pious of an individual, then as a general rule, you know, we, can, we can chalk that up to ignorance, lack of sensitivity, um, lack of familiarity, Right? And so they, the person, cannot be described as an evil person. That make sense? 
So the class example of Talmud is a, is, a Torah, is a Torah scholar who is having an affair. That's the example used in the, in the Talmud. That actually the re- reference that, that you should hate the sinner is referring to a Torah scholar who is having an affair. Like with his wife? Or with, what? Or with his wife? Well, if it's his wife, it's not a sin. Oh, okay, so that's a yeah, okay. Um, and the idea is that he's a Torah scholar. Like he really does understand that this is wrong and this is not okay, right? Number two, you have to be close enough to rebuke them properly. Now, how do you rebuke someone? Because they don't know how to do the mitzvah of rebuke properly. So you have to, first off, not do it in public as a general rule. There's a few exceptions. As a general, you don't do it in public. Um, and you speak to them and you basically say, like, what's... Like, this is not okay, and you know better, right? You know, this, this is why, generally speaking, in order to do rebuke, you have to actually have a relationship with the person or deeply care for the person because rebuke, the, the classic form of rebuke is you are drawing attention to their failings, and you're pointing it out, and you're saying, you, you, you know, what's going on? You need to do better, okay? And once you do that, if they don't change their ways, you're not allowed to hate them at that point. What do you have to do? <clears throat> you have to rebuke them again. You have to keep finding ways of approaching them privately and saying, you know, what's going on with you? Like, this is not okay. You know better. Like, you got to change. And you have to do it in such a way that you're not embarrassing them. You're not making them feel, um, not, like, tough love, in other words. At what point have you fulfilled your obligation to rebuke? When they threaten you with violence, they say, don't bring this up again. Next time you do, I'm going to punch you in the face or something like that. At that point, you fulfilled your obligation to rebuke them. And at that point, you're required to hate them. Why? Because at that point, what do we know about this person? Is there sin reflecting ignorance, lack of sensitivity, a moment of weakness? Now, at that point, what is their sin reflecting? Will. Their will to reject Hashem and his Torah. They have now demonstrated clearly that they are an enemy of God. Right? This is another one very clear. This is the thing that people... The author doesn't say you're supposed to hate their actions. The author says you're supposed to hate yeah. them, the person, because this is a evil person. This is a person who, knowing full well that what they're doing goes against God, having it been brought to their attention by people who care about them, has chosen to be obstinate and continue to act in a sinful manner. That person has set themselves up as a in their life as in opposition to God, and so you're supposed to hate them. But everybody else, you're not supposed to hate. What if they're not keeping Torah mitzvahs? What should you do? You should shower them with love and bring them close to Torah mitzvahs through love. And if you are successful, great, and if not, at least you fulfill the mitzvah of loving your fellow Jew. Because loving your fellow Jew means when you love somebody, you want what's good for them. And because you're loving their soul, you want what's good for the soul, which means you want to bring them close to Torah mitzvahs, right? So if you're not trying to bring a Jew close to Torah mitzvahs, that's a sign that you don't really have genuine. Obviously, so. Okay, what about those, those small number of people who really are, as a person, wicked, and they deserve to be, um, and, and they, 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 you should hate them? The author says, well, I mean, there's no contradiction between hating and loving. You can hate the person and love the godliness that's in exile within the person. Right? Which part of them do you hate? The human being. Which part of them do you love? The godliness that's trapped in the human being, right? So you love part and hate part. 
And in fact, that actually brings about a, another kind of emotion called compassion. You feel compassion for the godly soul. And in doing so, you're able to mitigate the negative aspects of the hatred. Now, I want to emphasize again, does the altar say you should hate their actions but love them? No. No. He doesn't say that at all. Okay. In fact, I want to point out, there's no reason to hate anyone's actions, period. You know why? That's it. That, I'm going to just tell you my own personal thing. I feel very strongly. Hating actions is stupid. I'll give you a simple example. Let's take a small child who does something that is very, very wrong. Now, I think it's clear all of us you shouldn't hate the child, right? You might, because we all have you know, our own emotional issues, but like, if we step back and reflect on it, like, it doesn't make sense to hate the child, right? The child is, you know, they're a child. What about their actions? Do you hate their actions? Well, think about what do you mean you hate their actions? I mean, clearly you don't approve of the action. You don't think it's correct. But like, hatred has a, has a, has a, has a deep amount of emotional investment. The, the, you know, it, I'll, I'll give you an example. So you see this sometimes, like like a, like a little kid, they 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 bump into something, they bump into like a cabinet, and um, and it hurts, yeah. And then someone says, well, "Bad cabinet." That's kind of silly. Why is it silly? Is there anything hate worthy about the cabinet? Is there any hate worthy about tripping and falling? Is there anything, right? An action can be a negative action and you can feel other kinds of emotions, right? But hatred is very much, there's a, there's a personification of those you hate. You're emotionally intertwined with them. And so when you hate actions, you're like personifying things that aren't like people. You can, again, think an action is wrong and appropriate. You can feel sorrow that an action, a negative action occurred and that brought about a loss. That's a different kind of feeling. Hatred should be directed at, you know, those who are against us or those who are against those who we love, right? And, you know, to personify actions is kind of silly, so. So never, like, anywhere in the time yet, should not hate the person with the action? Nope. Hatred should be directed at, you can find the actions disgusting. Give you an example, right? Kids sometimes play around with dirty diapers, little kids. It's disgusting. The action is disgusting, but it's not hate. Like, I don't hate the, act. I don't hate the action, I don't hate the kid. Right? I just, it's disgusting, right? And if I'm a little less mature, I might get frustrated. And if I'm more mature, I think it's funny, right? You know, at a certain point, it may be sad because the child doesn't realize that they should, at this point, realize it's disgusting, right? See what I'm saying? Like, so, yes. So, a person who knowingly, after you've gone through that level of verification by having have that knowledge of the person and rebuke them and seeing that it doesn't work, you know that there is a, they have chosen to be evil. Then you are supposed to hate them. That's a sign of your love of Hashem and your love of the soul. But at the same time, you're supposed to love the soul trapped in the person. Right? The only exception to this would be someone who is not just evil but is also simultaneously a heretic. In such a case, um, then there should be no love for them at all because as we discussed um, the, that the godly soul can be completely the draw from the person, in which case there's nothing in the person to love. There's not even a godly soul in exile there. So you hate them? So, there's those, so those are like the people that King David said, I hate them with an ultimate hatred. Um, the, the Rebbe points out that that part of chapter 32 is in brackets. 
because it's not directly related to the theme of the chapter. And the altar goes out of his way to, to say that King David said it because you need to be someone who is kind of in touch with the core of every Jewish soul like, like King David was to be able to make that assessment. You know, just because someone proclaims to you that they're a heretic doesn't mean that they don't have in their heart of hearts you know, some level of you know, connection that they still feel. But a person who truly is devoid of any sense of God whatsoever and willfully chooses to be evil, that person, like, there's, there's nothing to love inside of them anymore. How does this relate to Goyim? It doesn't. Goyim's a whole, not even part okay. of it. There's no mitzvah to love Goyim. There's no mitzvah to hate Goyim. So we, as a general rule. So we hate a Jew who basically completely rejects their God. It basically doesn't... They still have a God, so they just reject it? So, so the last part that I said about, about, about heretics... It, it's, it's a theoretical thing. It's not a practical okay. thing. Because there's no way for you to make that assessment. Okay. Was the Rebbe able to make this The would be able to make that assessment. Okay. It's interesting. I don't know that the Rebbe ever mentioned anybody as being in that category, related to anybody in that category. Are they really so common? I would imagine that they're not very common. It's very hard. It's very hard because you would have to have someone whose rejection of Hashem is so absolute and so voluntary and so conscious. I'm not saying it doesn't exist ever, but it, it, it just seems very rare. Okay. So, I, you see how, it's also an emotionally sophisticated chapter, right? right? It's not just, oh, we're all one and we're all a wonderful family, we should love each other. Should, I mean, that's good, do that, like be nice to your fellow Jew and, you know. But the Alter was saying something much more profound, right? That that who I am is ultimately who you are. I cannot be me without you, right? Um, and if you're, and, and, and the only reason to hate another Jew is if they are truly evil, you really need to know they're evil. But if they're another evil, you need to hate them. But even if you hate them, you still have to love them. Now, an interesting point I just want to bring out, um, how do we know, other than the Alter Rebbe's assertion that you're supposed to love every Jew applies to even sinners? Because there's a common view that it doesn't apply to sinners. One of the, one of the practical halachas of loving your fellow Jew, there's only a few of them, by the way. Um, one of them is that when you put a Jew to death in the Jewish court, you have to execute them in as painless a way as possible, provided that you're fulfilling the biblical requirement. No. So, for instance, the way they would do, uh, they, would, they would get them dr- um, drunk before the execution, um, the stoning was done in a way that would hopefully cause instant death. The burning was a way that was supposed to be as quick, as painless as possible. I'm not going to you know, tell you the graphic details. But this is all based on the idea that love your fellow Jew as yourself. Choose for him a, a better death. And this is a person who's clearly sinned enough that the court is putting him to death, right? So, so the Alter Rebbe understands that the loving your fellow Jew is universal, whereas the mitzvah to hate the sinner is actually quite restricted. But again, it's to hate the person, not to hate the actions. Okay, so that is that of a detour, and now we go back into the regular flow of the Tanya. So we were in these chapters discussing joy, simcha. And in chapter 33, the Alter Rebbe turns his attention away from the obstacles to joy, which we said were primarily this idea of atzvos vadaiga, sadness and concern, on the one hand, and timtumalev, the heart being closed off on the other hand. And again, the idea of sadness generally is to understand that really this, this sad feeling is either illegitimate 
misconstrued or just not appropriate right now. And then it's into Malavis to realize that you're a low life and miserable, despicable creature. You know, and devote yourself to your soul. But in chapter 33, he turns his attention to actually enhancing and increasing the joy. He says if a person feels the need to just boost the level of joy, uh, the level of simcha, in the context of, the, of, of, of trying to serve Hashem properly, so then the Alter says, well, the solution to do that is one should conceptualize as clearly as possible God's unity. See chapters 2021. Remember chapters 2021? See, so you should conceptualize God's unity as clearly as possible such that it becomes um, very, very obvious to you that the only thing that is real, the only thing that is present is God and he is present in this place in which we are as if as he's present anywhere else. And that the awareness that he is present brings you joy. Because your ability to conceptualize that, that clearly, the point that it brings you joy comes from the sensitivity of your soul. So the fact that you can um, appreciate the reality of God being all that is and all that matters in a way that resonates and is emotionally um, motivating shows how close you are to God. I'm give you a very simple example, even though the altar was to give this example, I'm going to give you a very simple example. Um, if your country wins some kind of competition, let's say the, the World Cup or, or um, the Eurovision Song Contest, whatever it is, right? These kind of things, right? And let's say it's not, let's say it's not a particular thing that you're into. Does it move people or not? Yes. Okay, based on what? Based on how much they identify as part of their country, right? Someone who has a strong patriotic sense, right, takes a lot of pride in the fact that their country won something that even though that particular thing and they're not really interested, they might never follow football or soccer, depending on what you call it, but if their, their country wins, wins the World Cup, they get very excited, right, because they have a strong level of identification. So the fact that Hashem is all that's real, the fact that that's something that you find invigorating, the fact that you find that enlivening, enriching, that that brings you into a positive state, what does that show about you? That shows that you are a being who's very closely identified with God. Because a being who's not closely identified with God, as clearly as they can understand that, as clearly as they can make sense of it, it's like, okay, so what? It's true. The aspect of the being that is close, is that not like a, I am not going to answer any questions about selfishness as a matter of policy. And the reason is um, there is a way in which certain questions need to be dealt with independently of any idea in Tanya. And if you don't deal with them independently, they corrupt. I'll give you another example of a similar type of thing. If a person asks questions like, um, why should I even want to be religious? Like, that's an important question to talk about, but if you do that in the context of Tanya, right? Okay. So I'm not going to explain why. You can ask me tomorrow questions and answers, but in the, I'm not going to go into any questions about selfishness or not. That's coming from a good place. So if conceptualizing vividly and clearly 
that Hashem is the only thing that's real. And in my whole existence, the only thing that's really genuine is Hashem. And that's it, in the most absolute sense. If that's something that you, that, that you find invigorating, that brings you into a positive state, what does that say about you as a being? You're a being who strongly identifies with God. So you are a being who's close to God. And if you're a being who's close to God, how should you feel about yourself? Good. And the altar gives an analogy. How would a lowly being, a lowly um, person feel if the king were to decide that they wanted to stay in their house? They would feel honored. They would feel privileged. Right? And then the altar throws in this other thing. Aside from the fact that you fathoming Hashem's unity to such an extent that it brings you joy actually fills the entire purpose of the creation of human beings and the world and all of reality. Because the purpose of the creation is to create a dear betachtainim, a dwelling place for God in the lower world. What is the lower world? The human rational mind. If your human rational mind can delight and take joy in God's absolute oneness, then God has found a dwelling place in the lower world. So you are exceptionally close to God in a way that's completely undeserving. Altar says, like, you didn't do anything to deserve this. You just inherited this capacity to be that close to God. And in doing so, you're fulfilling the purpose of your existence and the existence of all the world, right? All that should make you how happy? Extremely happy, right? Again, if you've adopted this value of seeing things in terms of your relationship with Hashem, right? And now here's the thing. If you're fulfilling the purpose of creation, how do you think that makes Hashem feel? And how do you feel when those that you care about are happy? Especially if you're the cause of their happiness. So the Alter Rebbe says, this is meaning, we can then add and double, we can redouble the happiness by adding this idea of Yismach Yisrael Ba'isav. Um, that, that the Jews should rejoice in their maker, meaning that anyone who is a Jew should rejoice in God's joy. So again, you contemplate Hashem's unity to the point that it's vivid and clear and that brings you a positive state of mind, a positive mood, right? You feel good. That A shows you're close to God. You're fulfilling your purpose of your existence in that, when you're in that mental state. You're fulfilling the purpose of the entire existence of the cosmos and spiritual worlds when you're in that state. It's completely undeserved, right? It's something we just have by virtue of our soul which we inherited. And on top of that, it's bringing God joy. So if you reflect on all of that, how much joy should you feel? tremendous amount of joy. So if you ever need to supercharge the sense of positive energy in a relationship with God to motivate that alacrity, chapter 33. Now, what's the problem? The problem is, and this is moving to chapter 34, you can't really stay in that mental state. I want to think, let's think about it. What does it mean to vividly conceptualize God's unity? No. I'm focusing more on the vividly conceptualizing. Uh-huh. And, and where, is there any room in your consciousness for anything else? So you're in some kind of deep contemplative state there, right? Can you parent your children? Go to work? Learn the laws of Shabbos? Live life? So you have a problem, right? You have fulfilled the purpose of your existence, but you can't stay there, right? And so the Altar compares this to the idea in chapter 34 that after Hashem revealed himself on Mount Sinai, right? He said, make a tabernacle, make a sanctuary, right? Transfer that experience into something that can hold it and contain it, 
right? So instead of God dwelling in a kind of revealed way in our consciousness, God dwells in a hidden way, but that is something that is sustainable. And how do you do that? And I'm going to apologize right now. No, unfortunately not. It would be easier if it was. There's going to be two ways. I'm going to do the first one first, the second one second. But this is one of the places in Tanya where it is just get, does get gender specific. Okay? The next thing I'm going to tell you, it says in Tanya, but does not apply to women. Is that when you fulfill the commandment of having fixed times for Torah study. Now, it's not the act of studying Torah itself, but the fact that you are doing it in the manner that is prescribed in the code of Jewish law. In other words, like it's Jewish men are required to study Torah. Um, and take a step back. How much, how are they required, what, what is the manner of their requirement? The, the re, Jews men are required to study Torah all the time, constantly. Now, the constantly has several tiers, several gradations, depending on the practicalities of a person's life. Okay, but it's a starting point to understand is that in principle, a Jewish man is supposed to be in a state of constant Torah study. Okay, now, just a, talk a second. In the temple, there are many things that were done constantly. For instance, there was the, the lechem upon him, the showbread. That was constant. It says the word tamid constantly. Um, there was the menorah. At least near tamid is a constant flame, right? There was the daily sacrifice, right? But whereas the menorah was kindled every night and lasts till the morning... Right, then there was, it went out and there was kindled again the next night. The sacrifices occurred once a day. Once a day in the morning, once a day in the afternoon. Right? Whereas the showbread, was literally constant to the point that when they would take the bread off, they would slide the other bread on at the same time. So there was, the, the shulchan always had the bread on it. So there's different levels of constant. That's the basic idea. But a, a Jewish man is required to study Torah constantly. What is the highest level of constant? At every available free moment. This is, applies to somebody who, again, we're assuming they're... they're capable of studying Torah, that's kind of taken for granted, and that they do not have to support themselves either because there are people supporting them or they're independently wealthy or whatever the case might be. Okay. Um, so practically speaking, who fits into that category? Yeshiva student. Well, really, people who are unmarried and being supported by their parents. People in Kolel and very, very rich people. <laughs> okay, level two is where you have fixed times for Torah study and you make your work schedule go around that. And level three, the lowest level is that you have regularly scheduled Torah study every morning and every evening. Okay. And by the way, this, this actually gets quite um, like, like the, the, the laws around this are very, very specific um, and demanding. So, for instance, um, it's not so simple that you can just cancel regular... If, if something is your regular scheduled, like, daily Torah study session for a man, it's not so simple that you can just, like, cancel it. Okay, it. So there's a kind of a permanence that needs to be there. Okay, there's, there's different tiers. So whatever tier the person is on... It doesn't matter. And the idea is that when the person is studying the Torah, and the Torah is, as we spoke about previously, that Torah is kind of identified with God in a way that mitzvahs are not. Mitzvahs are fulfilling God's will, but Torah is identified with God. And the Torah has a fixed place in your life, so God now has a fixed dwelling in your life. And the idea is that 
the person, because they can't stay in that contemplative state of housing Hashem in their conscious awareness, they transfer that into the, into the fixed Torah study. And in doing, and, in, and through that, Hashem dwells with them. But the problem here, and this is why I'm saying it doesn't apply to women, is that it depends on fulfilling the mitzvah to have fixed times for Torah study, which again, women have to study Torah for other halakhic reasons, and not for that reason. Then there is a second thing, which is you can, which is you can um, through tzedakah. And the reason here is not simply, not because it's a mitzvah, but because Hashem's entire mode of relating to the world is one of kindness, one of undeserved compassion. And so when we give tzedakah, we are literally channeling God into the world. We are, being, we're, we are becoming an extension of Him in the world. In a way that's not true, just with Torah mitzvahs in general. And Al-Tabu goes on to say that if you give the maximum amount of tzedakah that halach allows, then actually all of your endeavors end up becoming part of this because the maximum so the halacha generally allows is 20%. So if I want to give another, another dollar, I have to earn four more in order to be allowed to give that an extra dollar, right? Which means that earning that other four is part of my doing that extra dollar of tzedakah. Aside from the fact that I could use that dollar to like support myself in my life. So by giving tzedakah, especially the maximum ability, that is another way of, of, of housing Hashem in our lives. So the idea is that this joy that comes from bringing Hashem into our life and Him dwelling within us is primarily through that conscious awareness of His unity and the joy that we merit to have that closeness and the joy that we're bringing God such joy, fulfilling the purpose of creation. And then because that's not a sustainable state to be in, that then gets housed in the fixed times for Torah study and a life built around that, and to a lesser extent, in the giving of tzedakah, especially when one gives tzedakah to their fullest abilities, what I hope the Torah allows. And so the altar then concludes. So now you just need to have the emotional maturity to be able to like house the negative feelings towards your human self on one side of your heart and the positive feelings towards your soul and its redemption and bring God into the world and the other side of your heart. And then you can live a life with the positive energy of simcha and the alacrity that Zerizah brings to actually fulfill the oaths that we learned about in the first 25 chapters um, without getting hung up on all of the sadness and becoming closed off and complacent. And that ends chapter 34, which ends the section on simple, on joy. Okay. Now, if you were to read the Tanya again, you could skip 32, and, and you would see that the end of 33 follows directly both after 30 and 29. And the original Tanya went 29-33, and we're called 29-33. But, um, oh, sorry, not 29, 31. 31 to 33, and then 31 follows directly off of 29 or 30 which speak about how you should think of yourself very negatively. Questions? Okay. Now, at this point, we move on to um, chapters 35 through 37. What are 35 and 37 about? And remember? 
Right, because so the, the going back to the verse, right? The whole point is to explain the verse. It is very close to you in your mouth and your heart to do it, and explaining how it's close in your heart. And one of the key ideas was that we're only talking about emotions that motivate the observance of mitzvahs, right? As the verse says, I say that's what's close or very close to you. Emotional experiences beyond that are not necessarily available to everybody. Again, we're talking about in the relationship with Hashem, not in general emotional experiences. And so the Alter Rebbe says, okay, well, let's revisit that issue. What is, why this emphasis on the mitzvah? Somehow, ultimately, what really matters is that we're doing the mitzvah. So as long as you have the emotions that bring you to doing the mitzvahs, then somehow that's good enough. Like, well, why is the action of the mitzvah so significant? And then he asks a follow-up question. Why would God create people who can't become a tzaddik? This is 35. So there's two questions here. One, why is the verse emphasizing the importance of doing mitzvahs, right? That emotions are something that we can develop and we have to develop and we're, and we're charged to develop in as much as they lead to our mitzvah observance, but no more than that, what's the emphasis on the actual doing of mitzvahs specifically? And the second question is, why would Hashem create people who can't become a tzaddik? Why would Hashem create a bainani? Right. I want to elaborate on both questions for a little, a little bit. The first question is like this. The Alter Rebbe wrote a whole book expl- trying to explain the idea of how we have the power to fill our emotional duties towards Hashem, right? Who did he write that book for? I want you to think about that for a moment. What kind of person? Was every Jew. Whatever. No, like really. Who, who, who did the Alter Rebbe write the Tanya for? Somebody who wants what? To know how. To know how to be big. No. To have an emotional depth in their service of Hashem, right? Someone who clearly sees that what's important and what's missing is the emotional dimension, right? So where is this question or placing the emphasis in their Judaism, in the feeling or in the deed? In the deed. Wait. Replace where is the person who's coming to the Alter Rebbe placing their emphasis? In the feeling or in the deed? In the feeling. In the feeling. And what has the Alter Rebbe slowly, subtly done? He said, feelings, feelings, as long as they're focused on the deed. So there's like, it's not just like a technical question in the verse. There's, like, there's, a, there's, a, there's, a, there's a tension there. I came to you because I want to be able to serve Hashem fully with my heart. And you're saying, well, as long as it gets you to do the mitzvahs, that's good enough. You're... You, I came with you with one problem and you're solving a slightly different thing, right? So what the Alter Rebbe feels the need to do, and this is why it's important to think of this not in the question, framework of philosophy, but in the framework of like addressing a person. If I don't see the central significance of doing mitzvahs, then it's very hard for me to accept that my emotions are sufficient as long as they motivate mitzvah observance. Because I'm starting from the place of, right, the questioner that comes to Alter Rebbe, the times writing the book for, someone who sees the central significance of feeling love and fear and devotion towards Hashem. And say, well, as long as it's enough to motivate mitzvahs, to give life to your mitzvah observance, that's good enough. Well, you need to do something to assuage me, to give me comfort that, that mitzvah observance is really that central. It's not just a purely academic question. Um, and then the second point is the, the idea of creating a banani. There is an assumption in that God does not, it's not just in Chassidus, it's a consumption in Judaism, 
I think everyone, every Jewish thinker agrees with this, that Hashem does not do things um, that are pointless. That nothing knows, anytime Hashem does something, it has some sort of purpose, some sort of goal, some sort of, of outcome that justifies it. Okay. I'm going to make a very simple illustration of this idea. Is it a legitimate question in Judaism on its face to ask why God created evil? What do you think about it? Is that a legitimate question? Yeah, it's a legitimate question. Now, there are those who say that, well, technically evil is like the absence of good, so blah, 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 there's that view. There's as well, yes, we don't know the answer, we do know the answer, but I want to talk about why is it a good question because what you're assuming in the question is that evil wasn't just created because God wants there to be evil in the world, right? The reason why you ask why did God create evil is there's an assumption that the evil serves some kind of loftier purpose. Why is that assumption valid? Because to say that God creates evil means that God does something pointless. If evil is negative, then doing something negative just as an end in itself is pointless. Right? We may not always be able to fathom the purpose. That's a separate issue. But the idea is that God would not do something that is pointless and meaningless. It may be only pur- meaningful and purposeful from his perspective. That, that's a different thing. Okay. So now here's the thing. We spoke about a tzaddik as someone who was able to subjugate and even transform their animal soul, right? So is the godly soul coming in contact with the animal soul purposeful if you could end up becoming a tzaddik? So let's say you are a person and I send you somewhere to accomplish a task. If you can accomplish a task, it makes sense to send you there, right? To send a godly soul into the world for the purpose of subduing and even transforming an animal soul makes a certain kind of sense, right? Does it make sense to send you somewhere where you're not going to be able to accomplish the mission? Well, what is a baini? What is someone who is not going to be a tzaddik? What are they? They're someone who's a godly soul sent into the world and are they able to actually overcome or transform the animal soul? So is there any point in their existence? What? What's the point in their existence? No, he doesn't say that. That's silly and stupid, actually. I want you to think about it. Like, no, this is one of the things that really annoys me. Because there's things that we say as slogans and you try and implement them in your life, like when life actually gets hard, and it doesn't work. Think about this. You're going through something difficult, really difficult, really hard, right? And you tell yourself, the thing that God wants is me to struggle. The thing that God, why? Why? Why is that? Now, you could say that the process is because of something else. That's fine. But just saying the struggle, the pro- like, str- like, it's hard. One of my kids asked me this. I was talking to him about how life is difficult. Life is hard. And he's like, why? Why would God want it to be hard for me? Asserting that God wants it to be hard. God wants a struggle just because God wants a struggle. Like, if you can then say the struggle is important because of something else, okay, then that may be. But the problem is that the godly soul is so enmeshed in the animal soul. If it's not going to accomplish anything, it's not going to achieve anything by interacting with the animal soul, then why even, why bother? Okay, so you have these two questions, which like really should bother a person after the 34 chapters of Tanya, which is why should... Why is the value of my emotional feelings of devotion towards Hashem reduced to the role they play in mitzvah observance? Why is mitzvah observance so central? And B, 
if I'm never going to be able to transform myself, right? Remember, we said that you're not going to transform yourself. You as a human being are going to remain as a person as far away from God as is existentially possible, right? See chapter 29. What's the point of sending a godly soul into a person if, that, if you're not going to accomplish anything? It seems futile. And what happens when you feel that you're doing something that you see no value in, you see no purpose in? No, you might still doing it because you know the consequence of not doing it might be worse. But you stop doing it with any, any energy, any passion, any joy, right? I mean, again, if you're a believer in reward and punishment, you might still keep doing mitzvahs because you don't want to burn again. But now we've undermined the whole Tanya, right? So in a certain sense, the whole Tanya is standing on very flimsy ground because of these two questions. If these questions don't have satisfactory answers, a person can't live with the 34 chapters. Okay. So, the altar of starts off, chapter 35. Um, it says, okay, so it says, first off, um, we, there's a passage from the Zohar that we're going to need to understand. And this is going to kind of really frame the rest of the time. He's going to take a long detour in the middle, but the rest of the time is going to be framed around the passage in the Zohar. There was a young child who was very gifted in the Zohar, and he has all sorts of interesting things to say. And he says the following. He says that... Um, uh, it says in the verse, Chacham that a wise person's um, eyes are in his head. And he asked the question, like, where else would your eyes be? <laughs> is there a better place for eyes than in your head? And he says, rather, what this means is that the wise person always has their eyes, their mind focused on their head because the Shekhinah rests on their head, which is why you're not supposed to walk more than four Amos as a man without your head covered. Where the Amos comes from. And this is, and that, that Shekhinah, the divine presence that rests on the person, is like a flame. And just like the flame that rests on the wick needs oil, so too... Um, the Shekhinah that rests upon the person needs oil. And what is the oil? The oil is the Uvdin Tavin, the good deeds. And that's why Shlomo Melech says you should always make sure that your head is not lacking in oil. So the idea being is that the person is like a wick, the Shekhinah is like the flame, and the mitzvahs that we do, the physical mitzvahs we do, are like the oil. Now, before we go forward, we just have to understand the analogy, okay, and then we can go forward in Tanya, okay? So the idea is like this, that in order for the flame, and we discussed this briefly in Hanukkah, but the, in order for the flame to rest on the wick, there needs to be oil. We all know the oil goes out, runs out of oil. What happens to the flame? Disappears. So in order for the Shekhinah to rest upon the person, there needs to be something that functions like the oil, Okay? We're going to come back in a second what the idea of the oil is. And the oil is the physical mitzvahs we do. So what that means, we have a very simple equation. Physical mitzvahs equal the Shekhinah rests upon you. No physical mitzvahs equals the Shekhinah does not rest upon you. Good? Now, what is the function of the oil? So the function of the oil is that the oil ceases to be 
And in the oil ceasing to be, the flame comes into being, right? Think about it, right? How does, how does an f- oil candle work, oil flame work, right? The oil is burned, and the burning of the oil becomes the flame. That makes sense to everybody? Okay. And what's important to note is that oil burns smoothly, seamlessly. There's no resistance to the burning. So that's why, for instance, wood is not a good analogy, because when wood burns... It produces, there's, 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 there's crackling, there's smoke. The wood is on the one hand ceasing to be, but it's also resisting it. The oil is something which kind of gives itself to the flame. Okay. So oil represents the absolute nullification of your being. And in that, it brings into reality the presence of Hashem, the Shekhinah. Okay? That's the idea. And so where is the absolute nullification happening necessary for the Shekhinah in the mitzvah. Now you have to understand, well, why does the Shekhinah require absolute nullification? It's a simple idea is the Shekhinah is, and this is the way it's understood in, in Tanya, Shekhinah is the truth that there is only Hashem being made manifest in the world. Now, think about this for a second. It's a bit of a paradox. If you're saying that there's only Hashem is being made manifest in the world, what's the problem? What? No. Shekhinah means the absolute truth of Hashem is being made manifest. That's just what the idea is. If there's absolute truth, there's nothing other than Hashem is being made manifest, there's a bit of a problem. If something is being, if, if something is being made manifest, it's manifest through something else. Like for instance, right now, I'm making my ideas clear to you by speaking, so there's words, right? If there's... If there, absolute truth there's nothing other than Hashem then how does something convey that so go back to oil how does oil convey the flame does the oil stay being itself and that's what brings the flame into being or the reverse the oil and it's ceasing to be brings about the flame so how does the Shekhinah come about in this idea of Bittl this idea of absolute nullification so Shekhinah is when something in reality becomes totally nullified to God that reveals the absolute truth that there's nothing other than God. So far, so good? Okay. So now the altar returns our question to, well, why can't the soul be the oil, right? We have a godly soul, right? Why can't the soul be the oil? The soul is nullified to God. The soul is given over to God. And so the, the, uh, the way he explains it is like this. What makes things exist in a way that they are distinct and separate from God? Is that God is hiding his truth. The idea of God hiding his truth is also known as um, not revealing his inner will. The idea is like this, that when God reveals his inner will, that's the same thing as saying that God is revealing his truth. And when God is not revealing his inner will, He's hiding, he's concealing, and then what you have is an external manifestation. What this would mean very, very simply is like this. In a person, when you want something because it's important to you, that says something about you. That's what's important to you. But if you want something as a means to an end, that doesn't say very much about you, it says something about reality. If I want a car, 
because it would make getting around easier. It says something about society, about the physical world, right? About you know, economics of things. It doesn't say very much about me in terms of like my inner experiences, right? So the minute Hashem has a desire for something that serves a purpose, that has a goal it's meant to achieve, right? Hashem is hiding his true self. The only things that really reveal Hashem's true self is when Hashem reveals something that says, this is just something of me. And what something of him is when, when something else becomes totally nullified and his absolute being comes out. So we say like this, there's kind of two channels. There's what's called God's inner will and his outer will. The outer will is, a little, is really concealing God because the outer will is saying there's a rat way things work and in order to achieve what's important to me, I need X, Y, and Z. So it's giving credibility, it's giving significance to things other than God. The inner will is saying this thing really is not, has no value in its own right and in, and in that it reveals that all value, all significance only stems directly from Hashem. So let me give you a very concrete example because this is abstract. What is the difference between my hat and my tefillin. Why do I wear this hat? I'm gonna make a rule that you're not allowed to use, you're not allowed to use things like God says so, okay? Why do I wear this hat? It's a uniform. Right, so one reason is that by wearing this hat as a uniform, which helps both society view me a certain way and helps me view myself a certain way. Okay, so we can say this hat serves a purpose, right? It accomplishes something. Why do I wear tefillin? Well, first off, I believe that it's important, right? We can always say that anytime you do something, you believe it's important, right? So really what I'm asking is not why do I do it, but what, what makes it important? What makes the hat important is that it serves the, it helps serve the function of a uniform, or one of the things that makes it important. What makes tefillin important? Let's go back to the hat. If I wore this hat, but all the Lubavitchers in the world didn't wear this hat, would the hat still serve its purpose? Why not? Right. So the hat has to have certain features so that it can achieve its purpose, right? Like a uniform has to have, right, the notion that it's all the same, okay? So go back to tefillin now. Why is putting on tefillin important? Or conversely, what features would the tefillin have to, what features does the tefillin have to have to make putting it on important? Mm -hmm. That's right. <laughs> now, if you say because Hashem says so, what do you gain by saying that? I do because it's important. Okay, why is it important? I say you can't say Hashem says. Now I'm going to let you say why Hashem says. So now you tell me why saying Hashem says so changes anything. Like, how does that answer the question? Don't you want to know what Hashem says? But, but I want to know why putting on tefillin is important. You telling me that Hashem says so does that tell me why it's important, or does that just tell me how I know it's important? Now, why is it important?
Do you know why you can't answer this? Because when you want to say something's important, you think of what purpose it serves. Mm. What purpose does putting tefillin on serve? What does putting tefillin serve? Mm. Nothing. It doesn't serve any purpose. It serves no purpose. It serves no purpose. So is tefillin itself significant? Back to the oil. What happens? How does, you, how do you, how does the oil bring about the flame? Itself. What? By extinguishing itself, right? When you're putting on tefillin, you're doing an act. When you light a Shabbos candle, you're doing an act, which really has no no significance right? there is nothing about it which is why theoretically if Hashem were to say oh by the way now uh, actually now in, in, now tefillin don't have to be black they need to be green instead of being squares they should be rectangles and, or circles like, it wouldn't change anything because it's not the act is not really significant the altar says look if God took, gave us a mitzvah to chop wood then, then we chop wood like, it doesn't really matter so in doing in that in that act, you are creating a space for the Shechina. This is the Altarba's point. Anything that has a purpose and a function and a role stems from God's outer will, stems from God hiding the truth, stems from the fact that God is giving a sense that things have a significance in their own right, and therefore the Shechina cannot rest on them. Now, does your soul have intellectual powers? Does your soul have emotional powers? Do they serve a purpose? They do. Which means your soul's psychological abilities are coming from which part of Hashem's will? His outer will. And they're concealing the truth. Which means the loftiest experience you can have of God is still really not revealing the absolute truth of God because you're trying to connect to God from a, on the basis that somehow it is, you know, your intellect or your emotions have a role to play and they need to function properly in order to achieve their God-given purpose. Anything with a God-given purpose is coming from God hiding his self, God hiding the truth. That, that, because when you, something has a purpose, it means it has significance. It has a role to play. A mitzvah, and this is why mitzvahs are weird. Like, really? Can you explain to me why it's really important for me to like, take a palm branch and go like this? Like, like just stop and, and look at yourself for a minute when you do it. Right? So it, mitzvahs come from his inner will. They have no purpose. They have no significance. In their, in their non-significance, there is a space for Hashem's absolute significance to rest. Like in the oil becoming consumed, the flame comes into existence. That's not true of the powers of the soul. The faculties of the soul have a role to play. Right? Chachma has a role to make us aware of Hashem. Bina to be able to grasp Hashem. Das to stay connected to Hashem, right? Ava, love to motivate us to do the positive mitzvahs, Yira, to avoid transgressing the negative, right? All of these things have a defined purpose by God. And so they actually, as holy as they are, conceal the Shekhinah, they don't reveal the Shekhinah. Which means, even the loftiest tzaddik is not bringing the Shekhinah into the world through their transforming of their animal soul, they're bringing the Shekhinah into the world through their mitzvahs. When a tzaddik is having the loftiest experiences of God, the highest experiences of love and fear and awareness, whatever it is, that does not bring the divine presence into the world. It actually subtly conceals the divine presence. 
because those those experiences seem to have a significant role to play in the divine plan. And the minute something has a significant role to play, you're saying there's two things that matter. There's God and this thing that serves God's purposes. It's a mitzvah which seems to be like, and really ultimately is intrinsically meaningless, is a space for the absolute meaningfulness of God to come in. And so at this point, we're gonna end here in the middle of chapter 35, at this point, it becomes clear that the soul cannot serve as the oil. The only thing that can serve as the oil are things which stem from his inner will, which is the Torah mitzvahs. The rest of the chapter then makes the shift to physical mitzvahs as opposed to mental and verbal mitzvahs. Right? Lulav and tzedakah and Shabbos candles as opposed to Torah study and brachas. Why we need the physical mitzvah specifically to bring the Shekhinah to us. I'm going to warn you ahead of time right now, the next few chapters become incredibly abstract um, because they're dealing with kind of philosophical issues. Um, and it's only going to be to the end of chapter 37 that he wraps that up. So and then we're going to get back to much more of the kind of psychological flavored stuff. Although even the next few chapters have that still a little bit of a mix. All right. I think we're in good pace here. So we have two classes that we have to finish. 35 to 50. Okay. What? All right.